Our first guest of the program today joins us from the University of Ottawa, where she is a Ph.D. candidate in the Faculty of Political Studies. Caroline Dunton joining us to talk about an article she posted recently at theconversation.com entitled Federal Election, How the Next Government Can Build a Stronger Foreign Service. Caroline Dunton, good morning and welcome to our program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Let me just quote the first line from your article by way of a springboard into the conversation, if you don't mind. Quote, For sure. In the current federal election, foreign policy is getting very little attention, despite Canada's implication in many global crises and longstanding concern from all directions about Canada's place in the world, its image, and whether or not it's back. But what does rethinking Canada's place in the world actually demand? And then you go on to talk about the well, the, the people in Global Affairs Canada. Our Foreign Service Department is largely responsible for how we look and what we do around the world, right? Indeed. Um, and so, do you want me to give absolutely from there? Yeah. Okay. So, Global Affairs Canada is the federal department that is responsible for. Um, delivering foreign policy. Um, it is staffed with um, a few thousand public servants, um, and their job is to serve the government of the day. Um, and they do everything from trade policy to international development policy to consular policy, helping Canadians abroad, um, as well as um, you know security issues, diplomatic issues, um, sort of anything related to Canada's interactions with other countries or international organizations. Okay, so that's that's the function of global affairs. But Caroline, and I'm going to quote one more line from, from the yeah, piece. Over the past 15 years, all of those people that you've just talked about, their labor has been consistently under-supported and devalued by both former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and the current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's governments. How It's not as though they've had the department on ignore, but that's what you make it sound like. So there have been um, certainly uh, under Prime Minister Harper a large downsizing of the department um, and a bit of a move away um, from necessarily seeking advice on policy. There was also um, closure of embassies at the time and sort of a reduction of Canada's diplomatic presence abroad. Um, And Prime Minister Trudeau um, in 2015 um, sought to reinvigorate the Foreign Service Um, you know, part of that was the rhetoric of Canada is back on the world stage. Right, right. Um, And, you know, still to this day, as I mentioned in the article, we have fewer staff at Global Affairs than we did a decade ago. Interesting. Um, So there hasn't been, there hasn't been a large transition in sort of increasing Canada's resources abroad, um, presence in terms of personnel abroad, um, whether that, you know, staff at embassies, staff in Ottawa working on these issues, um, or representatives of Canada working um, at places like the United Nations, etc. So, Caroline, many of us can remember uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, making his first official visit to the offices of Global Affairs Canada, to the Foreign Affairs Office Indeed. in the Lester Pearson building in Ottawa. And that particular first visit, uh, he was treated like a rock star. They had a couple of thousand people cramming into the foyer of, of the building. Huge applause and roars and cheers. These are from people ostensibly uh, neutral politically. But the, the the cheers and 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 all of that, the enthusiasm came about as you've just described it, because these were people who had lived through years of shrinkage under the previous administration and were hoping, through all of this emotional outburst, to maybe have that era over and let's get back to the good times. And so that's a lot, a big a big part of what was it about. I must tell you, much of the citizenry was a little put off by the uh, by the partisan display with Mr. Trudeau's arrival. But you can understand based on that many of them were thinking, well, at least I'm going to be able to hang on to my job now. But what you're suggesting is since those days, those heady early days, the Trudeau government really hasn't done as much, certainly as those people were expecting the first time they saw Justin in their building. 
Certainly, absolutely. I was, in fact, there that day. Were you? Um, and I could, I could hear it while in a meeting. Um, I, I worked there briefly um, at that time uh, before I started my PhD, and so I wasn't, I wasn't physically in the room when it started. But um, you couldn't, ab- you couldn't out, avoid hearing it. I couldn't avoid hearing it upstairs, and then I, I came out of the elevator to go back to my office, um, and it was, it was, it was a very surreal and weird experience because i didn't actually know what was going on right and i couldn't see him i couldn't see him from where i was standing right away um but yeah i would say for the most part things have not necessarily changed that much um you know something that i mentioned there is um especially younger staff um so people of my generation um you know for years there were annual competitions um, to join the Foreign Service. Mm-hmm. People from across Canada could apply. Right. Um, and, you know, you would work through the system, um, work your way up over a long career. Um, and there have been, you know, to my knowledge, like I can count on, you know, less than one hand of fingers the number of times that that has happened um, since probably like... 2006, 2007. Hmm. Um, And so a lot of, you know, people who have joined the department in the last 15 years have done so um, without the job security um, needed to sort of really establish a good career. Um, There's been a lot of turnover and, you know, especially on things um, that are particular specialized issues or regions of the world. You know, it's not very useful for Canada to have, a new person covering the desk of, you know, let's say, um, Russia and Eastern Europe, just as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, a good one, every too. Year you're retraining people. You are, you know, spending a lot of time wasted on HR issues. And mm-hmm. ultimately, um, you know, people work really hard, but that takes away from Canada's ability to sort of develop um, a sort of strong knowledge of a region or a policy issue and stay engaged. And if if you have a, a turnover rate that is beyond where it should be, then you don't have a resident staff of experts, career experts on any given topic at any one time. Absolutely. That, uh, that is also correct. And, you know, I think um, this is not to... Um this is not to sort of diminish the knowledge and skill of people who do work there, but of course. It's, it's not adequately used. You know, there are a lot of people who gain valuable experience um, doing one thing, um, but, you know, they have to take another contract somewhere else um, or, you know, they don't get the sort of adequate professional development um, to sort of make them into a stronger diplomat, whatever it may be. Um, and these things will slowly work themselves up the chain. You know, it becomes hard to um, have skilled management um, if 15 years ago it was you weren't, you know, bringing in early career people who mm-hmm. would who would naturally um, be moving up at this point. Where does the government? Uh, you you talked earlier, and I can remember even back in my university days, it was a, it was a thing. The government uh, was were always looking for career people to go into government service, and of course, uh, the most exotic branch of government careers seemed to be the foreign service because hey, the taxpayers would pay you to travel all over the world and live and represent the country. What a glamorous gig! And I remember it being very popular among my classmates, many of whom uh, went on to work in government departments, none of whom ended up in the Foreign Service. Tell us a little bit about, um, well, we'll talk a little bit about who who goes to the Foreign Service uh, after the news, but in terms of recruitment nowadays, Caroline, do they still have that same base at at the university level that they're after every year? Uh, No, um, there is not. Right now, I would say um, for staff coming out of universities, it really begins with co-op students. Um, So I myself um, did work there as a student um, through, there is the federal student work program and co-op programs at universities. Uh Um, I did one, I did one at the University of Ottawa when I was a master's student um, a number of years ago. Um, And so undergraduate students um, and uh, graduate students can participate in that, but it's not a sort of specialized recruitment. There isn't a cohort 
um, of new Foreign Service officers every year. Interesting. Every year. Caroline Dunton joining us from the University of Ottawa Department of Political Studies. She's a PhD candidate. We're talking about the Foreign Service. Well, let's talk about Caroline Dunton for a second. I'm curious, Caroline, when you get and become Dr. Dunton, what do you intend to do? Do you want to go into the Foreign Service or do you intend to teach? Um, I do intend to teach. Uh, that is the goal. Um, I did work at Global Affairs myself off and on um, over the last few years um, because it helps pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did have, you know, I did have some wonderful experiences there, wonderful mentors and sort of made a lot of great friends. Um, but, you know, part of the lack of job security, et cetera, et cetera, um, it's not uh, it's not going to be a long term career for me. Um, so hopefully teaching. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, I, uh, it's odd because uh, you're talking about job security and the lack of it in a government position. Most Canadians are under the impression, Caroline, that once you go to work for the government, you pretty much got a job for life complete with a defined benefit pension plan that very few of us mortals have and all the rest of that. And job security, you can't even begin to imagine. So let's stick a pin in that bubble and talk about what it's like to work for the Foreign Affairs Ministry at Global Affairs Canada. If you're a young person, a career wannabe uh, foreign service officer, let's talk about what sort of person comes to the job and how they get treated once they're accepted into the service. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so the most common way in now is to start um, in a student position, um, which of course is hard to do if you are um, located outside of the National Capital Region. Um, But there have been far fewer um, and far far smaller competitions for a sort of long-term foreign service officer position. Um, And generally, um, people end up, you know, on a series of contracts, um, whether they are one year long, two years long. Um, Sometimes they start shorter um, at 90 days. Um, And so eventually, you know, there has been some legislation to make those jobs longer term. Mm -hmm. But especially compared to the rest of the federal public service, um, there is far less um, transition from sort of student or contract position to um, that sort of permanent long term position. I would say under Prime Minister Harper, the federal public service in general um, had a sort of slowdown in the transition to um, that sort of, you know, permanent pensioned um, benefited job. Right. Um, and many other departments um, didn't have, you know, weren't hit quite as badly, um, but also have recovered differently. And so I would say, you know, there are a lot of people um, who, who, you know, perhaps wanted to work um, at Global Affairs, but have gone elsewhere. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's necessarily, um, it's not necessarily a, a terrible thing in the end. A lot of other departments, um, you know, somewhere like Environment and Climate Change Canada certainly has um, a series of international desks where they work on, you know, climate issues um, and advancing Canada's position on those um, with other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are other ways um, to work on international issues, but certainly the sort of pipeline um, into global affairs um, has been um, fairly, you know, position-wise, few and far between. Interesting. And when you start with global affairs, if you're a young person who finally actually does get accepted into the Foreign Service, uh, as you mentioned, there's not a lot going on outside the National Capital Region. So if you're from B.C. or Nova Scotia or Manitoba uh, and you you get accepted the Foreign Service, uh, job one is moved to Ottawa, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, And, you know, it's also hard, like as I said, you know, many, um, many people that I went to school with, including myself, um, took student positions there. Um, and that's hard to do, you know, if you don't go to um, a school in Ottawa or a school with a co-op program. Um, you know, I'm uh, another issue in this country is, of course, um, education affordability and a mm-hmm. co-op program um, definitely helps with that. Sure. Um, but it is hard if you don't, if you aren't um, located in Ottawa. So if you're coming from the West or the East, um, it, it, it's hard to sort of have the certainty of, you know, I'm moving here for the long term. Um, if you don't know when you're going to get a long term job, <laughs> it may be 
short term for the first while. Right. Kind of an important piece. Our guest has written a piece at theconversation.com, friends, entitled Federal Election, How the Next Government Can Build a Stronger Foreign Service. And I'm quoting again from your piece here, Caroline. One cannot reimagine Canada's place in the world without the tools to execute that vision. I see two key avenues supporting a foreign policy for the future. Investment in people and investment in information. Let's break that down and talk about it in two parts. Let's talk about what sorts of investments the government of Canada needs to do by investing in the people who represent us around the world. Absolutely. Um, So the first one um, in terms of people is, you know, changing that human resources system to bring in people um, more longer term. Um, and also, you know, probably giving a little bit more um, flexibility and support um, to those who are posted abroad, to those who are rotating back to Canada and back out. Um, but then also, you know, very much not just bringing people into the department, but also regrowing the size of different divisions, different uh, missions abroad, um, and, you know, hopefully allowing for a larger amount of um, expertise being supported, um, a larger, you know, just, just in terms of people power, you know, desks that are understaffed. Mm-hmm. Um, you often find, you know, people, there's one or two people covering what you imagine to be a, a, a really large international issue. And um, it would really help, you know, if we could have a stronger presence on that issue, um, you know, more brains working on it um, to be able to, engage on that issue globally um and so i think it's sort of a it's, it's a large overhaul sort of from top to bottom mm-hmm. um with understaffing be- being a priority too right absolutely yeah. yeah okay now how about talking about investment in information what sort of information are we talking about here caroline sure um so i would say here um part of this is a sort of federal government wide problem is that the sort of information systems Um, information management systems, as well as this sort of, um, for those of us trying to learn about what's going on there, um, the access to information systems um, are also a little bit outdated. Um, But part of that is, you know, sharing information between departments, um, between um, different groups within the same department. Mm -hmm. Um, Which we hear in government is a a real chore. The right hand frequently having no clue what the left hand is up to. Absolutely. And in addition to that, this is also related to people, right? So if you have a lot of um, turnover, you have people who aren't in positions um, for the long term, then things get lost. Um, And, you know, you're kind of starting from scratch each time, um, no matter how hard people are working. And the problem is that, you know, foreign policy, let's say Canada's relationship with, um, to pick a country, let's say Denmark, um, you know, everything you as do the is battle over on... Greenland continues. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I'm sidetracking here. Go ahead. No, that's okay. But everything depends on what has happened before. So right. every interaction that you may have had with that government, those ambassadors, those representatives, um, you know, at the United Nations in New York, um, and keeping an eye on you know the politics of the country, the foreign engagement of that country, and so. You know, being able to reach back and say, okay, you know, 10 years ago when this issue came up, what did we do? Yeah. How, you know, what was the nature of our relationship? And if you don't have a good sort of information system, both technologically and also there's a sort of loss of knowledge through loss of people, then it's going to be harder um, to engage well with that country on those issues. I wanted, I, I, we're almost out of time here, Caroline, and I wanted you to include the, the notion of inclusion for retirees and to, to talk very briefly about what, what a benefit the retirees can be to the Foreign Service. Absolutely. So to, um, to very, very briefly um, give a little bit of background, I interview a lot of retirees uh, for my research because I actually work on the history of Canada's campaigns to the United Nations Security Council. Okay. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of interviewing and sort of oral history work. Um, and a lot of the feedback that I get um, from interviewees is that, um, you know, after, after they may have left the department, especially if it was sort of before the decline or early in the decline, um, 
you know, they didn't really get a chance to um, pass on the sort of institutional memory and experiences that they have. Um, and in addition, since there hasn't been a sort of steady growth of foreign service and sort of cultivating that as a profession, um, there's a lot of knowledge of sort of how to do that profession um, that has been lost. And these people also, you know, they're also in a position having retired um, to to reflect and be critical of the Canada of the past, too. And I think there's there's a lot of knowledge there and sort of wisdom in terms of you know, the profession. And is there um, room and, for them? Is there, is there a place for them in the current lineup to, to make sure that, that uh, the, the resource that they represent is, is available to them? Um, I would say sort of from the government side, no. Huh, um, I think, think so. that, yeah, and, and I think for me, it's a sort of recommendation that, wow, I'm learning so much um, from these people, and I know other political scientists and historians do as well. Um, and there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be preserved there. Um, and so I think, you know, a recommendation to the government is to, you know, look back at the previous generations, um, in order to think about the future. Indeed. And of course, and I have to leave it there, but in course, and here we are in the late 2021 and, and one reality in every sector of the economy is a labor shortage. And I would imagine that includes government departments, including the foreign service. So again, as we look around the spectrum available of available people, suddenly those uh, who are uh, boomers and retirees suddenly are finding themselves, well, it's kind of in demand again. Maybe the Fed will pick up on this too. Caroline Dunton, a real pleasure to have you on the program. Let me take a second to commend your article, Federal Election, How the Next Government Can Build a Stronger Foreign Service. It's available at theconversation.com and it's a great read, friends. Caroline, thanks for this this morning. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Good. Really appreciate. We saw this headline in the Globe and Mail the other day and decided we better follow up on it. The headline reads: "The Cannabis Collapse: Why Weed Stocks Are Crashing Again." The story goes on to extensively quote a couple of analysts at Canaccord Genuity, Matt Bottomley and Derek Daly, who keep an eye on this sector and write about it extensively, and have written this: "We believe that the ability to maintain and grow market share." in Canada will become increasingly difficult. One of the authors of that statement, Matt Bottomley, joins us from Canaccord Genuity in Toronto. Mr. Bottomley, Matt, good morning and welcome, sir. Good morning. How are you doing? It's, I'm fine, thanks, Matt. It's good of you to join us. This is really an interesting thing. Let's back this story up a little bit, though, to when cannabis stocks first came onto the market. A lot of Canadians in those heady early days, Matt, made gobs of money. Well, there's certainly been a, a, a pretty significant evolution in the sector. Um, if you really trace it back to, you know, the earlier days, even going back to 2015 and 16, yes. and, you know, back then, um, you know, it's a market where there was probably only six or seven licenses of note. Um, obviously, market uh, forecasts, uh, you know, calling for the rollout to probably be faster than it uh, than it ultimately occurred. Right. And, you know, a lot more government intervention in the interim, which has really, uh, you know, caused a lot of headwinds, uh, not from a regulatory standpoint, but from a taxation standpoint, that's made it very difficult to uh, sort of share the profits in the sector to what are now thousands of operators. Mm-hmm. So that is that a big problem? Is that a big part of why uh, the cannabis sector is struggling right now and why their stock values are way down? Now, let's talk about that, by the way, because that's the headline that uh, brought us to your, or, or your attention here. Why weed stocks are crashing again. Tell us where they're at this weekend, Matt. Yeah, well, basically where we're at right now from a, from a sector standpoint is you had a, a huge sort of... Um, increase and uptick in a lot of these valuations on the back of what I think was more sediment driven. So similar to a Bitcoin, right? There's a lot of excitement about the green rush and, you know, how big these markets are ultimately going to be. Right. And I think a lot of investors sort of um, got lost with respect to, you know, pinning it back down to fundamentals. We had a point in time where some of these wheat stocks were trading an ultimate in sort of absolute dollars as much as TELUS and some of these, you know, blue chip Canadian, more mature uh, companies out there. Right. So at, at some point, you know, rational has to come into the sector. And as the headwinds continue to persist here, 
in both the, the structure of the industry in Canada as well as the amount of uh, participants. Um, you know, valuations are starting to reflect that a little more now. And, and let's uh, include the fact that a lot of these companies that are active and trading and engaged and in, in making money here in Canada have grand designs on the American market, and so do their shareholders. And therein lies the problem, doesn't it, Matt? Because the American market doesn't exist in the same way the Canadian market does. It's spotty. It's only legal in certain places, so it makes it much tougher. Well, yes and no. So I would say that the Canadian licensed producers, uh, you know, up here in Canada, have a very uh, cloudy path to eventually getting into the U.S. just because it still is a federally illegal drug down there. Right. But when you look in the actual specific markets that, that are up and running, there's a number of them that within the, their own borders are actually doing very well. And in fact, there's many companies that are publicly listed here in Canada that only have U.S. operations that fundamentally speaking are doing much, much better than what we're seeing here in Canada and the number one reason for that is probably their ability to be 100% vertically integrated. So they can run their own stores. They have a lot more uh, flexibility in the types of products they can make. Whereas up here in Canada, a lot of these licensed producers are effectively growers of cannabis that yes. have very limited control over the marketing and retail side of the business, which is obviously very important. So these companies that are being successful, are are, are they full operations from the point of view of, of flower production and also the retailing of this, their own product? Is that why they're making money? It's all in-house, Matt? Exactly. You get the full cradle to grave of the value and supply chain and the taxation in the U.S. is also um, a lot more reasonable compared to what we have uh, have up here in Canada. One of the examples, this isn't a good one to use, one of the examples you, you used is a company, and I don't remember the name of it, but they trade on the Canadian stock market and yet they operate exclusively in Florida and they're doing okay. This is one of those companies that you just described. They're self-contained and they've got retail operations and thus they're being profitable. If an American wants to buy, uh, because they're operating in Florida, if I'm living in Florida, I'm going, wow, these guys, this is a good company to get involved. I want to buy stock in this company. Can an American living in Florida buy stock in this company on the Canadian exchange? Yeah, absolutely they can. And that's that's kind of the the trade that I'm more focused on right now in terms of what I like fundamentally. There's a sediment out there when you talk to a lot of institutions that are very bearish on you know, the Canadian landscape, but but very bullish on what's happening uh, in the U.S. The U.S., as strong as it is fundamentally, has its own, um, you know, uh, peculiarities in the fact that because it's federally legal, it makes it very challenging for, for a lot of institutions to own these names, just given the fact that it could be a headache from an internal compliance. Although you, you absolutely can if you elect to, um, you know, for, for the most part. Interesting. Now, in America, if, if there are chains of uh, retail operations. One thinks of MedMen, for example, operating in Massachusetts and Nevada and California. But how does a chain uh, operate like that successfully when even uh, transporting products from Nevada to California is a federal offense? Yeah, it's also another part of the U.S. sector that, that is challenging in that there's a lot of uh, duplication of, of capital expenditures. So you basically have to build up, you know, your operations as if it's a standalone business right. um, in, every, in individual, every individual market. So as much as that is a, a, certainly an inefficiency in, in sort of your capital allocation, uh, although you don't really have another choice, um, it's still remarkable that even under those conditions, you have like the company in Florida that you're referring to, the market leader there, uh, named Trulieve, they have on a pro forma basis $500 million of EBITDA expected by the end of this year. Wow. So we're almost, we're getting there. So it's not a lot of risk in that number. Uh, whereas in Canada, we only have a handful of, of, of operators that are profitable at all. And it's at very nominal level so far. So is uh, now in Canada, is what's the reason for that? Because we have a national market. It's not illegal to take product from Alberta to British Columbia. Uh, there are nationally uh, established standards and licenses and all of that sort of thing. It's a predictable marketplace. But as I understand it, perhaps it's a little flooded in terms of competition. And that's a bit of a problem, Matt. Absolutely. It all depends on kind of what part of the, what segment of the sector you're looking at. So if you're looking at national retail sales in Canada, we're three years in. Uh, I think entering our fourth year now. And um, it's run rating at almost three and a half billion in, in annual revenue. Is so that right? I know it's a small sector, but a lot of that gets eaten up by some of the provinces like Quebec, for example, the province runs their own store. So all of that segment of the of the market is just going to, to fund uh, the Crown Corporation there and, 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 you know, with running the stores and oversight. 
And, you know, we're at three and a half billion dollar market, but we have a thousand, you know, I'm saying that number loosely, it's probably 3000, you know, producers that are at least trying to compete here in a three billion dollar market versus Florida. You know, it's maybe one point two, one point three billion, but that's medical only. It doesn't include any recreational upside yet. Mm-hmm. And there really is, for all intents and purposes, five operators that are meaningfully competing there. So it's a completely different structure in terms of the competitive landscape and then what those companies are able to do within the industry, which in Florida, again, it's created the grave. They do it all. Yeah. It is part of the problem then from the Canadian end of things, Matt, over licensing. In fact, there are simply too many producers competing in the marketplace currently. Yeah, I think there's no question about it. We've seen pretty much every large licensed producer by market share and market capitalization make material write-offs in in the billion-dollar range. You know, we've had a lot of operations on the West Coast with with, with Canopy uh, essentially shut down a a couple of years ago. And and that's no different from a lot of the operators that we see across the country. It's uh, over-capital allocation into the actual agriculture side of things, which I think if you look at any sort of commodity over the long term, uh, you know, eventually there's a race to the bottom there in terms of pricing. And, and clearly the provinces are, are taking that pricing when it comes to competitive bids for uh, for getting products into stores. Nice. The cannabis collapse. Why weed stocks are crashing again. An arresting headline in the Globe and Mail the other day uh, caused us to connect with Matt Bottomley at Canaccord Genuity in Toronto. Mr. Bottomley is an analyst with that firm uh, specializing in the cannabis sector. Uh, Matt, uh, an anecdotal moment, if you don't mind. I have a cousin, a family in Smith Falls, Ontario. A cousin got a great job after the Hershey thing went away. Got a great job working the graveyard shift at uh, Tweed's operation in Smith Falls. Until recently, he got laid off. They canceled the graveyard shift. A few days ago, across the Georgia Strait in Nanaimo, Tilray, with their uh, Duke Point production facility, announced they're going to shut that one down. There's another 170 good jobs, too, that are going to just evaporate. Is this going to happen more frequently in the cannabis sector going forward, again, because of overcompetition? Well, it, it, there's a lot of moving parts. So I do think that when it comes to the need for cultivation in the country, yes, there potentially could be more headwinds and more headlines where you have, you know, the shuttering of various facilities, which is very unfortunate. Um, but overall, the sector as a whole, I think, is probably going to promote a lot more employment, you know, as, as it continues to develop. You know, we think this is well over a $10 billion market opportunity. And, and as we were talking before, we're probably only 25 or 30 percent of the way there. Right. So as the sector is allowed to have more product forms and advertising and the retail stores look more like, um, you know, more like what you might see is from the alcohol sector as opposed to something that still looks like it's from a prohibition era. Right. I do think the overall employment opportunities are certainly ahead of us. But, yeah, the facilities needed to grow the, the, the product right now for the actual biomass and the plant, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's probably too much of it in, in countrywide, and, and that's why we're seeing a lot of these headlines. No, I, I, I'm, I'm going to just follow up on one point that you made, and I could see you smiling as you made it. This, this whole program has been rolled out by people, and you get the feeling, Matt, that everyone responsible for this program that rolled it out across Canada was doing so ever so begrudgingly. Yes, yes, here it is, folks. Here's your blinking cannabis program. Program, even though it's it's we shouldn't be doing this it's bad for you it's wrong it's, i mean so it's the, the with the most with the greatest reluctance possible this thing has been rolled out and therefore full of obstructions and restrictions which makes it and, and they even in their advertising they talk about using uh cannabis like heroin it's still bad for you it's still wrong i mean and and, and so they can't advertise they can't sponsor baseball teams they can't have sales uh, when is that going to change yeah, I think it's just a matter of time. I think look, the way the government has done it, you have, first of all, you have over 70% of Canadians support full legalization. It was a big part of Trudeau's platform when he, when he ran in 2015. So there's not a lot of uh, PR issues here when it comes to the actual legalization of it. But I think the way the government has treated it is more of a allowing access to it as opposed to promoting it. Right. Because this is a walk versus run kind of launch. So I don't necessarily think that the way they did it, I understand the rationale behind it. You don't want to have all of a sudden, you know, cannabis being completely an illicit drug to all of a sudden, you know, it's branded on the Toronto Blue Jays uniform yeah, or right, something right. like that. So yeah. I think it will eventually get there. I mean, you look at the alcohol industry, right? It's a much, many would argue, a much more dangerous substance. Um, and you can wrap an entire city bus in a Budweiser logo, right? Sure. So it's somewhere probably in between that, but, but we're certainly in the early stage of, of what's allowed. And that's one of the reasons why I think the sector... Um, although it's growing, you know, probably hasn't grown as fast as it otherwise could have. 
You and your colleague Derek Daly wrote this to your clients. We believe that the ability to maintain and grow market share in Canada will become increasingly difficult. Flesh that out for us, Matt. Why? And again, this is a this is a sector that's very popular with investors, especially young investors. Why should they be not a little leery of uh, sinking the family fortune into cannabis stocks these days? Well, yeah, I think the first thing to distinguish there, and you did say it in the quote, is this is particularly a Canadian uh, phenomenon right now. I think that many of the opportunities in the cannabis sector when it comes to U.S. operators, they're called U.S. multi-state operators or MSOs, are probably at all-time lows when it comes to the relative valuation with many, many markets opening online and even noise at the federal level in the U.S. that there might be some liberalization coming next year. So I think that you know the region as to where these stocks are um, associated with is very important. But yes, on the Canadian side, you know, the reason why we think it's going to be ever harder to get market share is there's continuing to have these sort of microprocessors or, you know, more small batch um, uh, growers Mm -hmm. that really the provinces are not distinguishing between some of the larger players. So you could be a canopy growth that has, you know, a six or $7 billion market cap. And your purchase orders are not that much larger in some instances than some of these more um, you know, family-run businesses. So there's just not enough uh, economics to go around to service what are now a 1,000-plus uh, licensed producers that are still competing for just the Canadian market alone. Just on the other side of that coin, very quickly, $3.5 billion a year is what Canadians are spending on cannabis and its uh, products already. That represents a significant tax pump to a lot of governments that I'm sure to this minute are still quite surprised. Yeah, listen, the government is taking, you know, quite a share of this. You have, obviously, the harmonized sales tax at the retail level um, that that the consumers are paying. Um, But really, if you're a licensed producer, there are some examples, particularly in Alberta, where you can own your own stores. But for the most part, you can't. So you're basically, if a gram of cannabis is selling for $10, you're getting four or five of that um, from the actual um, buyer, which effectively is the government as well. And then of that 4 or $5, you have to give a dollar of that an excise tax. So even though it's a $3.5 billion market right now run rating, these producers that we're actually talking about that, that are you know, associated with a lot of these public market equities, they're only getting you know, maybe a billion of that right now, maybe a billion and a half. So, so it's, it's a much smaller portion of the pie compared to what the producers get in the United States. And as people look at the cannabis sector as a consideration for investing, where, where, where's the most likely portion of the sector to produce positive results? Like I said before, it's, it's all in the U.S. If you look at some of the leading companies like a Curaleaf, uh, a Trueleaf, a company called Green Thumb Industries, these are companies that have you know run rates of EBITDA, which is a proxy for profitability, right. of 300 to 400 million on average, and, and the leaders even at 500. And we're at a place right now where legal sales in the U.S. are expected to fall at the end of this year at 24 billion. That's in U.S. dollars, up from 18 billion last year, and I have it pegged to be 30 billion next year. So you have. obviously a lot more operators in the U.S. just by a factor of population, but those that are at critical mass that have revenues that are over a billion already, there's only five to eight of those. So there's a lot less uh, competition from from sort of the institutional uh, eyes and ears where I think a lot of these companies are going to be phenomenal trades over the next number of years. But again, these are not companies that operate in Canada, which is what the article in the Globe was essentially about. Well, it's an interesting article, and thank you so much for joining us this morning to flesh it all out for us. Lots to think about there, Matt, and we do appreciate your taking some time to join us. Yeah, take care. As we move forward on this Saturday morning, we remind you that a couple of months ago in July, the mayor of Victoria wrote to B.C.'s Attorney General David Eby expressing the city's concern about violent and repeat offenders being released on a promise to appear in court, talking about concerns about public safety and particularly increased pressure rather on the police department. Victoria Council wanted to know if there was any way to hold somebody in custody until some kind of risk assessment to public safety could be made. So the Attorney General replied by saying that accused persons, even those facing the most serious charges, have the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. And then he tossed the ball to the feds by saying bail provisions are under the Criminal Code of Canada and therefore the responsibility of the Minister of Justice in Ottawa. So helpful. Uh, Here to talk about all of this is the guy in charge of where most of the pressure lands, the Police Department. A pleasure to welcome Del Manick, Chief of Police, City of Victoria. Chief, good morning. Thank you for joining us, sir. 
Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's it's a pleasure to have you on, Dell. And I'm I'm sorry it's under the circumstances, but this is terribly important stuff to talk about. It's the whole notion of catch and release, and it's 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 a frustrating matter to citizens. It must be just monstrously frustrating to police departments to see these bad guys basically hauled in and released before anything uh, any accountability can even be determined. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, I think that our officers are realistic, uh, and and they get it. There's a wide range, uh, you know, on the spectrum of public safety that the officers have to manage, and and not every case is exactly the same. Sure. Uh, but what what we are finding though uh, is under you know Bill C seventy five, which by the way the act received royal assent in June of twenty nineteen. So so it actually the act was passed two years ago, mm-hmm. and you're right, it was uh, through the federal government. The criminal code has now been amended. And our local uh, provincial crown council uh, is required to follow the provisions of the criminal code, uh, which, which again is followed across uh, across the country. So, Chief, Chief could so you what, take a second? Just to, I'm sorry to interrupt, sir, but could you take a second and tell us what changes that 2019 legislation brought about? What could happen before the change in 2019 that isn't allowed now, or vice versa? Sure. Yes. So, generally speaking, the amendments in the act. Uh, were really meant to modernize and streamline the bail regime. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the goal was to try to reach a balance and mm. to ensure public safety and to help maintain public confidence in the criminal justice system. And so it's, the legislation is also referred to as principle of restraint. Uh, and as you mentioned in your opening, you know, uh, we here in Canada, you know, have that presumption, presumption of innocence. Right. So, uh, you know, Crown Council in BC is, is required to lay the charge. The police officers recommend the charge, but it's actually the, uh, the, the Crown Council who is the one who review the charge and actually lay the charge. Right. So now with this new legislation, what happens is generally there was a recognition by the government uh, that there's an overrepresentation of indigenous accused and those that are from vulnerable populations and they're overrepresented in the criminal justice system so for all of the right reasons uh you know they really wanted to modernize the act and and look at bill c75 as bringing in uh new changes that will now give judges and and crown counsel a primary consideration to the release of an accused at the earliest opportunity and on the least onerous conditions. I want to repeat that at the earliest opportunity and the least onerous conditions that are appropriate under the circumstances. So there's a wide latitude uh, in this area. And that's the challenge. There you go. And that's what I was going to get to. And I thank you for letting me do so because it's that uh, the, 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 it would depend then on, because you talk about the range of conditions for release and would those conditions of course be determined chief by the severity of the charge? Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, everything is open to interpretation. Uh, You know, uh, the victim of a crime or perhaps the larger community um, might see a particular crime or a prolific offender or a violent offender, uh, and they might feel differently for public safety and to maintain the confidence in the criminal justice system, right. which, by the way, was the whole purpose of modernizing the act and updating it. Um, you know, and, and what we're finding is our officers are finding on the streets is that um, more people than not, uh, because as I mentioned, the default here, the default is you will be released into the community. And of course, there are exceptions, but there has to be reasons in order to retain someone in custody. And that does happen. I want to just be clear here. It's not every single offender is getting released. Um, But what we're finding is the the go-to is generally, as a default, is to release people into the community, maybe put conditions on them. But we're talking about people, uh, uh, some that are violent criminals, Mm -hmm. some that are prolific offenders. And so, so there's no consequence. Uh, you know, they're they're essentially laughing at our officers uh, and at the community when when a, a business owner says, you know, you're you're causing a ruckus in the store. I'm going to be phoning the police. Uh, and because there's no consequences and they know that, you know, the, the, the police are probably not going to show up. And if they do show up, uh, there's very little consequence. They'll be right back on the streets. 
it's it's now changed the tone and the attitude of many of our criminals that we're dealing with, and it's become a bit of a revolving door. Yeah, and we're seeing that here in Vancouver too, as you well know, Chief. With all, of, especially on the West End and downtown, where I, I, again it doesn't. It seems, as particularly if you live in these areas, that it, it's almost out of control. And again, it's I suspect a lot of it is simply with this. It, it's like we used to say with the Young Offenders Act when smart kids who were 15 and knew that they really weren't going to get in much trouble with the law, and even if they did, it wouldn't cost them much time, really were used by gangsters and whatnot to do bad things, knowing that they could just skate through the system pretty easily. Uh, it, it There is a sense in the general population, Chief, that this law has created a similar kind of an environment for a lot of uh, a lot of people who sh- who really are skating when they shouldn't be yeah i think uh, you know i chalk it up to unintended consequences you know everything is done for the right reasons and and you know are there more uh indigenous um individuals and uh, individuals from vulnerable populations and groups uh, overrepresented in the criminal justice system of course there is and so I think that, uh, in my view, the government was really trying to look at this critically and to try to find a way to try to rectify that. And I think that I applaud the government uh, and all levels of government for looking at this. Right. But when you have unintended consequences, and, and again, the, the purpose of this legislation was to actually enhance public confidence in the criminal justice system. We're just starting to see that the reality of it is when a properly applied, this principle of restraint and Bill C-75's provisions are not actually keeping the community safe in, in many circumstances, not in all, but in many circumstances. And it is causing a level of frustration uh, with boots on the ground and with the community. The community are saying, this person just did a fairly egregious act. Yeah. They seem like they're a habitual criminal uh, and there's no consequence and they're just right back on the streets committing those crimes again. And of course, you know, the police resources, whether it's in locally with VPD in, in Vancouver or, or Victoria Police here on the island, uh, we just don't have the resources to, to be able to uh, uh, keep catching and releasing people in the community. And it certainly doesn't give public confidence to our community that they're kept safe. Indeed. And of course, I mean, if you if you did have the resources, we wouldn't having, be having this conversation. Every time a bad guy was uh, released on bail, uh, a police officer would be, fine, would be assigned to that, follow that individual and make sure he or she doesn't get in any more trouble. But that's simply not possible. It's ridiculous to think that that might happen. So the reality is you are you have limited resources and yet those resources keep being overextended by more of this category and release stuff going on. Yeah, and I think that, Sterling, the other thing, though, is it's almost like a perfect storm uh, for the police because now we also have, um, well, one, we have shortage of resources. Uh, There are more standards than ever before. There are provincial policing standards that every police uh, department must follow in the province of BC. Uh, Higher levels of requirement for training. There's more uh, people that are mentally ill that are on our street that yes. are either unserved or underserved, mm-hmm. and so we're we're starting to see, and specifically here in Victoria, and I know that uh, Chief Palmer's got challenges in, in Vancouver as well on this. Is the police department are in a no-win situation? Yeah, we're, we're dealing with people that are mentally ill. Uh, they're in the throes of a crisis because other systems have failed these individuals, uh, and then the police are left to be able to. To, to deal with a broken system. And of course, our officers now uh, then are accused of saying, well, why are police responding to mental health calls when really we don't want to be responding, but there's no one else with a capacity working 24-7 that's able to, to, that's able to assist in these situations. Chief Manic Bill just sent me this, just popped into my mailbox. Ask the chief, how bad is bad? Where is the line that keeps people from being sprung? We talked about this sort of in our opening segment. Where is that line? Yeah, so again, it is a bit of a blurry line, uh, and the decisions are made by by uh, Crown Council because they, they really have the final say. Um, so again, I'll just start off by saying that, remember, the default is that you will be releasing individuals into the community and under the least onerous conditions, right. and those conditions have to be reasonable. This is so the, the 2019 say, law. This is the new change, right? That, that, that's correct. Yeah, okay. Bill C-75. Okay. So uh, there are cases where there is a, a violence against an individual, so uh, crimes against persons, where um, there is a violent attack uh, and it's in the 
public interest. And there's no doubt that this individual poses a serious risk of harm to the community. Now, in those cases, uh, Crown Council, the police would recommend that this individual be held in custody and, and make their know. first appearance. And Crown is on board. I mean, they, there's just there's no issues around that. But the challenge, though, becomes when, you know, maybe it's not quite that egregious yeah. of a crime, uh, but it's it's the nuisance it's the repetition it's the person you know walking around and a lot of times mental mental health is a barrier and a challenge mm-hmm. um but it's the it's the individual that still is causing major risk to the community major harm uh they're a repeat offender a prolific offender usually with other drug addiction or mental health uh challenges as well um and but those individuals continue to be released in the community which you know after the second offense third offense sometimes the same day, sometimes within the same week, Yikes. Uh, sometimes more than that. Yeah. Uh, you would think that, you know, the system uh, would provide a little bit higher level of confidence to the public and say, well, maybe we need to now hold this person in custody because they just don't have the ability to self-control and to follow social norms and rules. And that's where I think that, you know, the, the public and the police department are, are looking to the courts going, what, what is going on here? Yeah. Uh, you know, the system is failing all of us. You talked about unintended consequences as a result of this new law in 2019. Could it be simply that the law tried too hard to overcompensate for past injustices, thus leaving us with a bit of a dog's breakfast that we're dealing with now? Well, I think that's open for discussion. Uh, I, I certainly think that uh, uh, that a lot of us are feeling that way. Um, that you know, again, you know, it talks. It actually talks about uh, to give public confidence in the criminal justice mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. and and I think in many cases it's actually done just the opposite. Uh, let's go to the phone lines, Richard in Langley. Good morning, sir. Uh, good morning, Sterling, and your guest. Uh, just. Uh in, before I retired, and I worked with the, uh, the the bus system over here on the Vancouver side, we would have the transit police would would take a uh, remove a, a person that was being crazy on a bus on, under the mental health act that right. would allow them somehow to to uh, to arrest them and remove them. But is, is there a problem with removing or arresting someone under the mental health act into treatment as opposed to just into the courts? That's a good question, Chief. What do you know about that? Yeah, uh, no, Richard, that's a really good question. So uh, the Mental Health Act, first off, the Mental Health Act is actually going to be revised. Its legislation is so old, it's it's ridiculous. Mm. It needs to be modernized. And I know that the Special Committee on Reforming the Police Act is actually looking at modernization of the Mental Health Act. Under the Mental Health Act, uh, police officers will apprehend an individual. Uh, but the, the legislation allows the officer to take the person to a hospital. So they're not charged criminally. Uh, they're, if they're a danger to themselves or others, or, or feel, the police feel that this person is a danger to themselves or others, and they meet that criteria, then they're taken forthwith to a physician where their mental state is is um, is looked Assessed, at, right, and sure. they might either be committed. But here's the other thing: is the health system also is structured that usually there's a shortage of beds. Yeah. So unless it's egregious they're released into the community. Really what we're talking about here is there remains a requirement for certain group of individuals uh, who are who are ill and unwell that are on our streets and there needs to be therapeutic custodial involuntary care. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. Right. Um, people who have lost uh, any way of following social norms and, and they need help. Uh, we need to have a robust system and regulations and laws to address the severe impact that drugs and severe mental illness is having on users. Yeah. Uh, Chief, uh, there are uh, groups out there very much determined to reform uh, police practices in Canada from the extreme of defund the police, which is, of course, absurd, to uh, various other reforms. Uh, And a lot of them are talking about uh, uh, allocating some police money to individuals who would uh, sort of ride along with the police who are social workers or mental health experts who are able to deal with people that... uh, Unfortunately, as you say, the police end up dealing with in a lot of cases, and they're perhaps not the most appropriate, but the only thing we have. What about that in terms of sharing of existing resources or perhaps expanding re- existing resources to include more people capable of dealing with deranged people, for lack of a better word? Yeah, so Sterling, I can tell you that myself and, uh, and all of our colleagues and police leaders across this province welcome the discussion. 
We all want to be a part of the solution. We're community leaders. We know we have a role to play, and we welcome that discussion. The only thing that I ask is that that discussion be based in fact, Mm -hmm. and it be data-driven, and we don't have false narratives that are out there. Now, do we we absolutely support. uh, The system's broken, so we would support... uh, uh, more money, more programs, and and more support when it comes to mental health care. There's no doubt that the system is fractured. The system continues to work in silos, and the police are left picking up the pieces. Yeah. Now, now I, I just want to be careful here. Traditionally, police organizations have been underfunded, uh, and the demands on us and our officers is is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So I would just say there doesn't have to be a connection to, well, in order to get more resources and more mental health supports, it comes at the expense of the police. Why does it have to be one or the other? I agree. What we need is we need robust public safety systems and the police departments need to be funded appropriately. However, we also need to enhance care and support and services in many other areas. And I think we need both. And I think both is possible. Well, the problem, of course, is that the top of all of this, uh, signing the checks and pointing to where the money goes, are politicians, and their priorities do not necessarily always line up in parallel with police concerns, do they? Well, well, that's true. Um, you know, and, and those are the challenges and the discussions that uh, police leaders like myself are having on a regular basis uh, with, uh, you know, our municipal councils and, and whatnot. And I think that, you know, the, the reality of it is that the police are doing far more and our communities expect us to do far more. They want to see us in our communities preventing crime, engaging in community. They don't want us to see us traditional law enforcers, uh, which, which I think is a good thing. Sure. And so, but you have to also look at what the officers are exposed to. I mean, our officers uh, are booking off on occupational stress injuries, physical injuries, exposed to high levels of trauma, mm-hmm. emotion, and stress Understandable. more than they ever have. Yeah. And, and we just can't run our officers into the ground. Yeah. We need to make sure that they're adequately supported and that we have enough officers to actually adequately serve what our community is asking our officers to do. Did you know while washing your laundry in hot water may get out the stains, it's leaving the ocean less than clean? Metro Vancouver says hundreds of tons of microfibers are released into local waterways every year just from folks doing their laundry. And now Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart is on a mission to get us on side with cold water washing. Mayor Stewart is also chairman of Metro Vancouver's Liquid Waste Committee. Mayor Richard Stewart on the line with us this morning. Mr. Mayor, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. It's good to have you with us this morning, Mr. Stewart. Let's talk a little bit about this microfiber business. And for the benefit of those, it's early in the day, Richard. So let's get it, boil it right down. What are we talking about with microfibers? Well, I'll also remember that perhaps some of them are having breakfast. So I won't talk too much about where the microfibers are ending up. But essentially, when you wash your clothes, some of the little bits of fiber, of whatever your clothing is made of, breaks off and ends up in the wastewater as it gets down into the sewer. And ultimately, we're able to trap a lot of that back at the sewage treatment plant, the wastewater uh, treatment process, Mm -hmm. but some of it doesn't get through. Some of it makes it through. So our goal is to try to minimize the amount of uh, microfiber that actually leaves your laundry. And it's billions of pieces from your household alone every year. And those tiny little bits... The ones that are synthetic fiber, of course, that's actually plastic. It's microplastic. And the parts of that that end up in the ocean get consumed by plankton and by various um, organisms through the food chain. And they move up the food chain as other organisms eat them. And ultimately, the salmon and the orca consume this microplastic through the, the prey that they themselves eat. So the goal, obviously, is to minimize microplastics that end up discharged into the ocean. We're upgrading wastewater treatment plants for this evolving threat. Right. We're still left with, wouldn't it be best if we could control from the source? And the best way to do that, it actually reduces microfiber production in your laundry, is to wash in cold water. Most of today's detergents work well in cold water. Sure. Our water is very soft here in the lower mainland, so it works better. It actually works really well in cold. And uh, the 
you know, you'll, your laundry will end up clean, but you will end up with less microfiber in the wastewater and your laundry will last longer as well. So is it simple to, simple to say uh, that simply by, the, it's the heat, it's the hot water that creates even more breakdown of fibers during the washing process. So if you just simply switched from hot to cold, the, the breakdown would be reduced by, what kind of percentage are we talking about? It's, we, can, we can achieve a 50% reduction okay. right off the bat just by using cold water. Hmm. And I got to tell you, Richard, your your pitch is a little better than you know Stone Cold Steve Austin and Ice Cube on TV for Tide Cold Water Wash. They're a little on the aggressive side. I must say your your approach is a little more <laughs> a little more uh, you're a little more approachable than those guys. But the message is very much the same. So talk to us a little bit about some of these microfibers. You talk about microplastics, and then so I'm assuming beyond microplastics, any other type of fiber that breaks off a, a, an article of clothing during a wash would uh, somehow or other break down uh, and, and disappear, but plastics don't. Well, plastics don't. Well, they eventually do a thousand years from now, but those little bits of plastic will be floating in the ocean and being reconsumed over and over again through, through generations to come, and we really need to minimize that. But the other fibers aren't particularly benign. Okay, that's what I was getting at. Each one of them, cotton and wool and those things, can be treated and they've had chemicals added to them and certainly they're a different color. They're not the color of sheep anymore. They're now the they're purple and very... Sure, of course. So they're just not... We we should try to avoid uh, having those break off as well. And they break off because of heat. Uh, Hot water, Mm -hmm. actually drying aggressively in a dryer, that's the reason for that lint basket is because that lint is the fibers that are breaking off uh, and becoming weaker in the dryer such that next time you wash them, we'll have more fiber being breaking off in the wash because we dried them in, in hot uh, in a hot dryer. Well, that's, so we, that's an interesting that's analogy to draw, though, Richard, if I may interrupt, simply because it allows someone who's still kind of baffled by this whole microfiber, microplastics business, if you can relate that to the stuff that's left over after a drying cycle that you need to scoop out and throw out, there is an equivalency to that on the wet side of the laundry process. We just don't see it. It gets flushed away, right? Absolutely, and it's tiny, tiny little pieces. The stuff in the lint basket, actually, the, the really fluffy tiny pieces go through that basket and end up in the exhaust air from your dryer, mm. uh, which obviously needs to be cleaned out every now and then as well. But in the wash, it stays suspended in water, and we need to minimize that. We can actually, if you were to hang dry clothing the way our parents did when we were growing up, um, that would be an excellent way to further reduce the amount of microfibers and to make your clothing last longer. And it's uh, uh, Stuart is a Scottish name, of course, so mm-hmm. it saves money as well. <laughs> Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the, uh, again, with the, the, the evidence that you have, because you talk about this, the food chain and how these microplastics get flushed out in the ocean. They escape our water treatment facilities and because they're so minute, and yet they accumulate in, in water creatures. Tell us what evidence you have to back that up. There's actually been a, a lot of scientific research about what happens to a piece of microplastic, and it's easier, of course, they'll put it in a, a scientific aquarium, and they will watch the amount that gets consumed by the microorganisms inside the the water. And, of course, ocean water is filled with billions and billions of, of microorganisms sure. that ultimately get fed on by um, bigger organisms and uh, all the way up the food chain. So uh, we actually have a research facility at the Anasis Island Wastewater Treatment Plant uh, in Delta that examines all kinds of issues. We have laundry equipment to try to um, replicate the kinds of uh, source control that we might be able to get. Um, It's uh, hard to do on the source control side Mm -hmm. with microplastics unless we can get uh, simply a different mechanism for washing the clothes. And the best way to do that, we've shown, uh, the science has shown, and these researchers have shown, is to uh, reduce the temperature in both the washing and the drying 
but particularly the temperature of the water. Interesting. Now, while we're the the folks are being encouraged to switch over from hot to cold water washing, I would assume there's an equal push on the other side, the scientific side, to to improve yet again or even more the filtration systems that our water treatment facilities already have. Absolutely. The, the water wastewater treatment has changed enormously over the last few decades and so we are now able to get to a tertiary um, treatment uh, a third level of treatment uh, much more easily that said they're not perfect they, they still you know so we still urge people don't flush your expired medicines because it's really hard to pull those chemicals back out of the water before we release it into the ocean and they some of them can be very harmful yeah so that those those unflushables we continue to pursue um the the ones that clog things like uh, suppose supposedly flushable wipes that clog the pumps don't flush those at all, but and the latex and the feminine products and there's all kinds of things that ought not to be flushed. But chemicals and microplastics are a particularly dire challenge for wastewater treatment. Have we seen any any current examples anywhere on the planet right now where we can point to and say, look, if you don't deal with this problem, you're going to end up like X. Is there X out there already that is just weighed down by this already? Uh, the oceans all around us, because there, it's one big ocean. It's you know, they're, they're, it's not like a, a one lake that get gets polluted, and, and you could probably control the pollution from that one lake. Right. But the ocean, the currents just carry the microplastics, and will carry the microplastics through the next thirty generations <laughs> before they break down. Uh, it will be a thousand years, and we need. Uh, we, you know, we can all point to the fact, for example, the news this morning said that 50% of the coral reefs uh, have disappeared uh, around the world. Um, and there's been ongoing damage caused by human, human-caused uh, climate change, by the chemicals we use, um, you know, the way we treat the earth. We just have to get a little bit better at it so that each of us can, um, and it doesn't have to be more expensive, obviously, or we can actually save money in this situation because the advances in detergents have made it so that washing and cold works just as well. Well, and that's something that, you know, as individuals, and we're, and we're in an election right now, climate change has certainly been very uh, front and center as one of the main topics, certainly for the politicians. I don't know how far behind or how disconnected they are from the electorate on that. It's a, it's an issue of concern for all. And a lot of people are wondering, you know, well, so what? how can I change anything? I mean, I'm only one little person and, you know, it's China polluting the world. It's not not my fault. But and an individual in your own home, in your own daily life, you can affect change simply by doing something as simple as changing the way you do the laundry. Exactly. China, there's lots of countries around the world that are adding to the problem, but your household right now is putting in 500 billion pieces of microplastic every year through your laundry equipment. Let's just try to reduce that. Let's uh, can we uh, just expand this conversation as we look to the population growth of the Metro Vancouver area. I had the good fortune to have one of your uh, water Metro Vancouver water people on last summer, Richard, and he was talking about having raised the the bar. The expectation was in terms of water management planning that there would be 30,000 people moving into the Metro Vancouver area every year, and that has now been raised to 35,000 people expected to move into our part of the country every year. And that necessitates a tweaking of water management strategies. Are we okay still with our water capability deliveries up to accommodate that expanding number? Well, actually, Metro Vancouver is, is embarking on a program to try to add to our water storage, primarily not because we don't have enough storage, but because we can't access all the water. The Coquitlam Reservoir, which is the largest of the three, it's actually uh, as big as the other two, Aplano mm-hmm. and Seymour. The Coquitlam Reservoir, the intake is too shallow. It's at the shallow end of the lake, and so there's a plan now to drill through the mountain into the deep end of the lake so that we can actually access more of that water. At the same time, we have to do the conservation stuff that's really important. And we're lucky in that, well, lucky, there's no land left, so we're not going to be building single-family homes to accommodate those 35,000 uh, 
people a year. Right. Uh, they're lar- largely going to be accommodated in multifamily settings, sometimes common corridor buildings or townhouses and such, and those use up lots, a lot less water. The typical single-family family, family, family uh, home that are... The typical family that lives in a single-family home uses up multiples of uh, what a family uses in an apartment. Setting. Interesting. It's largely that that uh, the watering the lawn, the filling up the pool, of um, the sorts of realities that single-family homes face that multifamily homes don't. So that as we switch the residential reality of Metro Vancouver into more multifamily settings, um, the average water consumption actually does go down. And so we have kept our average water consumption here in Coquitlam to be quite, uh, it goes down every year. Um, and it does so across the region. We still have to be conscious of how much water we use. But you're right. Lucky is a good word to use when it comes to Vancouverites and water. There's no shortage of that. Uh, very good of you to join us this morning, Mr. Mayor. We do appreciate the message, particularly those cold water washers. You don't have to, you, you just do it. It just makes an enormous difference, and it's a very small way to contribute to a very positive outcome. Richard Stewart, thank you for this. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Richard Stewart, Mayor of Coquitlam and Chair of the Metro Vancouver Liquid Waste Committee.